Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Praise your name, Jesus. We praise your name, Jesus. We're so grateful to be in your presence tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It feels like just yesterday, it was this time last year. Time has flown. Amen. Tonight, we are going to do things a little bit differently. This is the last Wednesday before the 4th of July. And I started something last year that I want to continue, make a tradition of. And that is on the last Wednesday before the 4th of July to kind of take a look back and examine the foundation, if you will, of this country. Take a look at where we are as a country now and then what the church's obligation is to America going forward. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to, we're going to put a hold on our study of Revelation. We'll pick that up. Uh, later, but tonight we're gonna we're gonna examine the question: Is America a Christian nation? Is America a Christian nation? Would you pray with me over this, Jesus? I'm so grateful to be in your presence tonight, God. We're grateful for this blessing that you've given us in the United States of America, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't take this gift for granted, but God, help us to examine the foundation, Lord so that we wouldn't forget where you've brought us from and what you've done in this land. God, we're praying for revival throughout America. In order for there to be revival, there has to be remembrance. God, help us to remember. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Psalms chapter 33 and verse number 12 and Proverbs 14 and 34. We're going to read those two scriptures right here at the beginning. Psalms 33 and 12 says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. There's a promise from the word of the God, from the word of the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose, whose God is the Lord. And then Proverbs 14 and 34, I've quoted this Scripture so often, I used to have it written down on a piece of paper that I carried with me. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Those are two promises that we have in the Word of the Lord. And as I stated at the beginning of this, what we are going to do tonight on this last Wednesday before the 4th of July is we are going to examine the founding and the foundations of America. We're going to look at the current condition of America, and then we are going to examine our obligation to her moving forward. And we do have an obligation to America moving forward. Recently, there was this national radio talk show host, and a call-in listener He and this listener were talking, and they were talking about Christianity in America. The conversation continued and developed, and the host, who is an avowed agnostic, said, why do Christians think that they had anything special to do with the founding of this country? Anybody who reads history books knows that Christianity was no more involved in America's founding than any other religion. And that statement, of course, is completely and totally false. It, It does not, history does not bear that out. Unfortunately, though, that is the leading, uh, 
thinking, if you will, today in America. That's the prevalent thought. But the truth is that as a nation, in fact, no other nation in the history of the world has ever been so profoundly shaped by Judeo-Christian values that are found throughout the Bible. But the question that I wanted to examine tonight is, are we a Christian nation? In order to answer that, we have to define what I mean by, are we a Christian nation? And inevitably, whenever I have this conversation with someone who doesn't agree with me on my perception of this, the conversation is always, not everyone in America is a Christian, so of course we can't be a Christian nation. And if that's how you define what it is to be a Christian nation, then you would be correct. Then we wouldn't be a Christian nation. However, if being a Christian nation means that Christianity was the central religion of the overwhelming majority of our nation's founding fathers and its influence is undeniably seen in our nation's founding documents and that Christian values and moral codes were accepted as the rule of social order, then yes, I would have to say that we are, in fact, a Christian nation. Or as we'll go along, at least we can say that we were a Christian nation. Certainly, throughout America's history, our people have not been timid about that very fact. I'm going to tonight present... Uh, significant evidence. When you walk away tonight, you ought to be able to have a conversation with anyone about America's founding and bring to them evidence, overwhelming evidence, that this was a Christian nation at its founding, at its core, at its foundation. The legislature of New York declared in 1838, this is a Christian nation. 99 hundredths if not a larger portion of our whole population believe in the general doctrines of the Christian religion. That was the New York legislator in 1838. The decision about whether or not this country is a Christian nation actually came before the Supreme Court in 1892. They got together and they were going to determine uh, the truth. What, do, what did the evidence state? Was America a Christian nation? After studying many of our founding documents, in fact, every bit of evidence that they could get their hands on, the judges of the Supreme Court, and if anyone who knows anything about the Supreme Court knows that it's, it's difficult, if not almost impossible, for our Supreme Court at any time in its history to unanimously agree on any one thing. They're always in disagreement. They hardly ever have a unanimous ruling. And yet, in 1892, nine judges gave a unanimous ruling on the matter. They said this, All of these, an abundance of evidence of various documents show that this is a religious people this is a Christian nation. The Supreme Court of the United States found a clear definition of that truth, that this is a Christian nation, or at least it was. So let's look a little bit at uh, America and its beginnings so we can find exactly how the Supreme Court or why the Supreme Court came to that conclusion. I think that it's safe to say that the Christian faith was involved in nearly every aspect. And I realize this isn't taught in schools today. But the Christian faith was involved in nearly every aspect of our nation's beginning. Almost every aspect. And they have tried to write this out of our history books and write this out of our school books. And yet, it is so. Christopher Columbus in 1504 wrote that his reason for setting forth to discover a new land, this is why he said that he set sail. He said, I was led of the Holy Spirit to carry the message of the gospel to undiscovered lands. That was his motivation. His motivation for finding a new nation, a new country, a new land. 
The purpose of the pilgrims in coming to America was to establish a political commonwealth governed by biblical standards. In fact, the Mayflower Compact stated that they had come, and here we go, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. They said in their founding document that they arrived in America for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. The Puritans set forth to America for the stated purpose of showing how a nation could prosper if its citizens lived under the laws of God. The Plymouth Charter, talking about the Plymouth Colony, says that to advance the enlargement, this is, this is why they exist, this is their reason for existence, to advance the enlargement of the Christian religion to the glory of God Almighty. The Delaware, the Delaware Charter, the reason for that colony's existence, they said was to further propagate the Holy Gospel. The Virginian Charter, why uh, the colony in Virginia existed, they said was to live in Christian peace and instruct people to propagate the Christian religion to such people who yet live in ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. The Rhode Island Compact, this is their reason for existence, the colony in Rhode Island. We submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our country was from its very beginning, the very foundation, its existence was to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. On July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress signed what we know as the Declaration of Independence, which states emphatically and clearly their belief in Creator God. In fact, it's where we lean on for our, uh, Thomas Jefferson said it correctly, inalienable rights. They were given to us by our Creator, not by the state. And if government gives us our rights, government can take it away. But if, in fact, God gave us our rights, then there's nothing that the government can do about that. And, in fact, we are the only nation in the history of the world founded upon those principles. What's interesting, if you were to be there that day as they are arguing about this point, whether or not they should... uh, seed from England, whether or not they should write their, declare their independence. You would have walked in on a room that was extremely divided and full of tension. You would have walked in on a room full of human beings that sincerely wanted the best for their fellow people, but they didn't really know what to do. And you've got half of them that wanted to declare independence and you've got the other half that believed that that was treasonous. And right at the end, when almost all was lost, right at the end when they were almost ready to give up and go home and decide that it wasn't worth it, a man stood up. His name was Ben Franklin. He is known as one of the least religious of our founding fathers. That's what they teach our young people today in school. Ben Franklin, they believe, was a deist, one of the least religious of our founding fathers. And yet it's this man, right on the verge of the Continental Congress collapsing in on itself and not declaring independence. And if that would have happened, there would have been no America today. The world would be a different place. In that moment, Ben Franklin stands up and he tells the men that are meeting in that Continental Congress, he says, gentlemen, I believe that we ought to spend time in prayer and in fasting because we need the will of God done. Ben Franklin, one of the least, according to our teachers today, religious of the founding, believed that we needed prayer and fasting in order to get direction from God. Right at the moment where it was critical, we could have, we could have ended up not being a nation at all. And yet, providence, God, the hand of God, we see on our nation's founding. A critical moment where God, I believe, moved on a man to move those men into prayer. 
And the will of God, I believe, was accomplished. There are those that would argue that George Washington was also a deist and not a devout Christian. But did you know that George Washington, gentlemen, every morning he would wake up and he would go to his chair and he would open up his Bible and he would get on his knees and he would spend an hour praying and reading his Bible and praying the scriptures. And did you know that every night around nine o'clock, he would leave whatever he was doing and whomever he was talking to and whatever business he was conducting. And he would go to that same chair and he would open up his Bible and he would begin to pray and he would read the word of God. Two hours every day spent reading and praying the word of the Lord. And yet our teachers today teach our young people that he was not a devout Christian. In fact, he was a man that questioned his faith and didn't really know what he believes. But I would say tonight, I challenge anyone to spend two hours a day in prayer and Bible study and determine whether or not that man was serious about his faith. If you can accomplish two hours a day in prayer and Bible study and walk away thinking that he was not a serious man about his faith, then you're something special. George Washington was serious about his faith. He wasn't questioning it at all. And that was a practice that he held for the vast majority of his life. When he took the oath of office, he did so with one hand on the Bible. After he took the oath of office, George Washington leaned down and kissed the Word of God. And then he led the people over to St. Paul's Cathedral, and he led those people in a two-hour worship service. This was George Washington, the man who some would consider is a deist and not a serious Christian. Did you know that in every uh, building, in every government building in Washington, D.C., every serious building, there has been a church service held in? Don't believe the lie today that there is separation between church and state. That is not to protect the government from the church. It's to protect the church from the government. They can't keep Christianity out of our governing halls. It was there from the very beginning, from the very founding of our nation. As president, it was also George Washington that instituted a day of thanksgiving, and this is what he wrote. Wherefore, the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor. That was the reason for Thanksgiving in America. And how often do we on Thanksgiving Day put it that succinctly? God, we're thankful for everything that you've done in this country and you're doing in this country. George Washington felt that way. Now, if you will, consider the role of the church and its pastors uh, throughout the early days of America. I'm going to talk, I'm gonna, just going to mention a couple of them here tonight. There was Samuel Smith who wrote the hymn, My Country, Tis of Thee. There's John Leland, another preacher, who wrote the introduction of the First Amendment to the Constitution. Ben Franklin said himself that if it were not for the preaching of George Whitfield that prepared the colonies for independence and that without his preaching there would be no America because they were a people that were in the middle of a great awakening, they were ready for independence from England. Prior to the war between the states, get this, and this is amazing considering that our colleges today are nothing more than indoctrination camps. Consider the fact that at, prior to the Civil War, 90% of all of America's college presidents were preachers of the gospel. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Dartmouth, William and Mary, and Columbia were founded by Christian preachers and church affiliations with the expressed intent to educate youth for Christ. This is, this is our history. This is America. 
America at its founding, a Christian nation. John Harvard, who was a pastor in Charleston, Massachusetts, and he was the man for whom Harvard University was named after. This was his stated purpose for founding the university, that every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the foundation of all knowledge and learning, and to see that the Lord only giveth wisdom, to let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret, to seek Christ Jesus as Lord and Master. That was the founder of Harvard's express intent for the college. And in 2021, Harvard is nothing more than an indoctrination camp. And it's a place where you're not even hardly allowed to practice Christianity. Yet the founder's sole intent for the college was that a young person would realize who Jesus was and his connection to all of truth. Even Harvard's original seal, how many knows what Harvard's seal is? Today it just says truth. If you go to their college, it just says truth. But this was what it really was at the founding. Truth for Christ and the church. That was the motto of Harvard. They've changed it now. It just says truth. But it was truth for Christ and the church. Columbia University wrote that it was founded for the chief things that are aimed in this college are to teach, engage the children to know God and Jesus Christ and to love and serve Him in all sobriety. America's first school book, the New England Primer, it had the Lord's Prayer on its cover. It just... It baffles me because today, if you get caught carrying a Bible into many classrooms, you're going to be kicked out or very least have to take the Bible out of the classroom. And yet the very first school book in America was the New England Primer and it had the Lord's Prayer on the cover and it taught the alphabet using theological verse A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, it's heaven defined, the Bible's mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. That's what young people were taught at the founding of America. If you hold in your hand a $1 bill, on the back is a great seal of our nation. On the seal is an unfinished pyramid, and you may have heard a lot of things about it. Above it is the eye of God. It is surrounded by words in Latin that says, God has smiled upon our beginnings. And since 1865, purposely printed in the center of our currency are the words, in God we trust. The influence of God upon the founding of our nation is so evident that no one who has an accurate study of history can reasonably deny it. A while back, and we're getting ready, I'm, I'm going to show you a, a couple of the uh, evidence that are in our monuments in our nation's capital. But I had a conversation with um, a relative of mine who was of the leftist persuasion. And he was trying to convince me that America uh, was, was never a Christian nation, that it was a secular nation, that it just allows religious freedom. And he was so proud of our nation's capital and everything. And he was taking a visit to the nation's capital. And I said, while you're up there, you'll notice that in every building in that nation's, in our nation's capital, there is scripture and there is verse. And it's overwhelming. You can't, they can't hide it. And there's a rewriting going on right now of our nation's capital. They would like to, they would like to rewrite history and write Christianity out of America. But the problem is that it's written in stone. So in order for them to remove Christianity from America, they're literally going to have to tear down buildings and monuments all across Washington, D.C. Let's look at the evidence. In the capital of our nation, not only the documents as we have seen, 
the inaugural addresses of presidents, the constitution of, of several of our states, but also the monuments bear indelible testimony to our national faith in God. The cornerstone, get this, of our nation's capital building was laid by George Washington himself. Later, a metal box was inserted that contains the documents that they wanted to have preserved and remembered. The dedication of this was done by Daniel Webster. And this is what he said. And all here assembled, whether belonging to public life or to private life, with hearts devotedly thankful to Almighty God for the preservation of the liberty and happiness of the country, do unite in sincere and fervent prayer that the deposit and the walls and arches the domes and towers, the columns and the entablatures now to be erected over it may endure forever. God save the United States of America. That was the prayer at the very founding of the first building in Washington, D.C. They've got work to do if they're going to remove Christianity from the country. In the Capitol building itself, you will find score after score of sculptures and paintings that mostly have to do with great Christians and events that took place in the founding of this country. You may have seen those. They have been documented many times. But in the House of Representatives or the Senate, maybe you haven't noticed, maybe you have, but you will, if you visit, you will find carved in the wall above the chair where the moderator sits. If you've ever watched um, the president give the State of the Union, behind the speaker there, you'll notice these words, In God we trust. In the Supreme Court building, you will find inside the courtroom where the justices sit, many carvings and entablature. One of them depicts Moses holding in his hands the two tables of the law. One attorney general pointed out that there are 20 different pictures, representations of Moses and the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court building itself. Of course, if you were to wait, if you're in the Supreme Court, and you were to wait for the deliberations to begin in the courtroom, the justices would come in, and you would hear the crier saying, Hear ye, hear ye. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and the Honorable Court. You can't get away from it. Enter the White House, where the first inhabitant of the White House was John Adams. He was our second president. He had carved over the fireplace... In one of the large dining rooms, these words, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. If you go to the Washington Monument that is, rises 600 feet over Washington, D.C., it's the tallest monument in Washington. It's dedicated to our first president. If you were to climb it, climb the stairs of the Washington Monument, you're going to read all kinds of scriptural references such as God and our native land or from other Christian writings. This is all in the monument and this is partly why they would like to tear down and there's been a movement to tear down this monument in Washington, D.C. If you're there and you're going up, you're going to read scriptures such as the memory of the just is blessed, Proverbs 10, 7. Search the scriptures, John 5, 39. Holiness to the Lord, Exodus 28, 36. Suffered the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God, Mark 10, 14. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, Proverbs 22 and 6. You will find written there, in God we trust, and may heaven to this union continue its beneficence. It's all over the place in Washington. If you reach the great pinnacle of that monument, there in the metal cap at the top, and on the outside you would see beautifully engraved these words, and I love it so much, 600 feet above our nation's capital, you find these words, praise be to God. 
And that's the monument that hovers over Washington, D.C. I don't know, is this a Christian nation or not? You go to the Library of Congress and you will see on the walls of the various rooms that building everywhere sentiments such as the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? One God, one element, and one far off divine event to which the whole creation moves. Nature is the art of God. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. That's in our Library of Congress. So whether it's the statement of individual founders or it's all of the charters and covenants or it's the Declaration of Independence or it's the Constitution itself or the Constitution of all 50 states or if it's the inaugural addresses of all of the presidents of the United States or whether it's our monuments, paintings, or other items found in all of the nation's buildings in Washington, they all agree with one voice, that this is a nation under God, that this is a nation that loves God and loves His Word. And then we look at the America as it presently is. Because what I've been doing is I've been showing you that overwhelmingly, without question, It's not even close, not even up for debate. That's how overwhelming the evidence was or is that our nation at its founding was a Christian nation. It's all over the place. You have to literally close your eyes and block out everything around us in America if we're going to argue that America was anything but a Christian nation at its founding. But we've got to look at America as she presently is. And I still believe that America is a great nation, the greatest nation on earth. But the question we have to ask is not, is she the greatest nation on earth? Because if you look at the earth right now, that's a pretty low standard to set. But the question is, is she still a Christian nation? We know she was a Christian nation, but is she now? Is she still? Does she remain a Christian nation. I believe it is yet to be seen. And the reason I believe that is because we are reaping right now the harvest that has been sown by secularists and atheists for generations that mock our values and mock our beliefs. And they've done everything they can do to remove every vestige of God from society. In 2012, and it's interesting I'm not going to get up here and tell you which party to favor because there may come a time where neither party can receive the vote of a Christian. But in 2012, one of our parties, the Democrat National Convention, they got together for their their convention and their meeting in order to nominate someone uh, to run for President of the United States. And when God was mentioned, He was booed across the crowd. Booed at a national convention in America of one of the two major parties in the United States. We are a nation that is struggling right now with possibly the greatest evil the world has ever seen. And I'm not talking about racism, and I'm not talking about homosexuality, and I believe that both of those are dangerous and evil. I'm talking about abortion. We are a We want to call ourselves currently a Christian nation, but we are murdering babies by the thousands every week in the United States of America. Since Roe versus Wade, millions of babies have already been murdered and they continue to be murdered. But there is hope because right now the pro-life movement is gaining steam. And it's interesting, they try to use science to beat to death the church But in this arena, science is actually supporting what the church has been saying all along. And that is from the very beginning, that is a child. It's a living, breathing person. And we've got to stop that. So if America will ever be great again, if America can be called a Christian nation again, I believe that's one thing that's got to go. And there was a time 
in America where slavery was prevalent and it was all over the place. And you know who had to rise up? Christians had to rise up. Don't let them twist that story. It was Christians who were the abolitionists in the 1800s who were leading the charge against slavery. It was churches who were leading the charge against slavery. And eventually slavery in the United States fell. And in order for abortion to fall in the United States, the same thing has got to happen. But now something has changed. Something has shifted. And what has shifted? Our churches, the mindset of our churches has shifted. Because in the 1800s, you would not have been able to convince a Christian that it was their job to stay out of the, of the political realm, of the moral arguments of the day. You couldn't have convinced a Christian in the 1800s that. And now we have leaders of the Christian movement who have bought into the lie that a Christian should stay out of political arguments and should stay out of what's going on in our world. And because of that, we have turned over our institutions to the world. Our children are now being indoctrinated in our government-run schools against the ways of God. We've got to be careful. So if abortion is going to fall, it's going to take us, the church, being the church and leading the charge. Homosexuality, I'm going to touch on that, is not only accepted in the United States... But as you have learned all the month of June, it is now celebrated in the United States. And you can't go anywhere in the month of June without seeing a celebration of it. It is just in our faces. And it reminds me, I was in Bible college whenever I first read the book, The Marketing of Evil. Brother Matthew is reading that book right now. In it, the author documents two leading progressives in the 1990s, they came up with a game plan, if you will, to sell homosexuality to America. And here's what they came up with. They decided that there was no way public opinion, Brother Jeff, was so against homosexuality. There was no way that they were going to turn the entire nation and, and make them accepting of it. So they decided we may not can change their minds about it, but we'll pour it on them so much that maybe at least they'll get used to being wet. What does that mean? That means that we'll just become apathetic about it because it's everywhere. We just want to be left alone. And it's true. I just want to be left alone. It's invaded every area of our society. Literally, their game plan that they set out has worked to a T. And in order for the church, in order for the church to gain ground in America again, we're going to have to find our courage to preach against some things, some taboos that the world doesn't really like. Amen. They're going to call us bigots and homophobic and all kinds of stuff, but we're going to stand with the Word of God. And that's the only way change is coming to America. You know what's interesting? Racism is so appalling. And guess who led the charge against racism? The church. Christians. Racism is so appalling today that the world and the church and everyone, you have a hard time finding anyone who will just openly come out and say that they're for racism in 2021. Everyone agrees on it. When something bad happens in our community, you'll get on social media and everybody posts that they're against racism. But where is that same courage when we're talking about the sin of homosexuality and the sin of abortion? The church has got to find its voice and not just talk about things that we agree is wrong with the world. But we need to talk about things that the world thinks is right, but the Word of God says is wrong. And that's the only way that we're going to see a change in our country. We're talking about where America is today and whether or not things can change, and whether or not this is still a Christian nation. i got to be honest, I don't know that we can honestly say that America today is a Christian nation. We may have to accept the fact that we are living in a post-Christian America. That doesn't mean that we can't turn it around. That doesn't mean that God can't have revival here, and that we could see America become a Christian nation again. But that just means that right now, the way things stand, I just don't know that we can be honest with ourselves and say it's a Christian nation. Our schools that we send our children to learn from is completely corrupt today. 
In fact, I tell people all the time, if you love your kids, you probably ought to pull them out of that system. And, and you know what the world has done? The world has done such a great job mocking homeschool and homeschoolers that it's become a taboo. And people are so afraid of what their children are going to turn out if they pull them out of school. But did you know uh, Abraham Lincoln, who is almost unanimously considered one of the smartest men America has ever created? He was self-taught, self-educated. He didn't even have a homeschool education. He was self-taught. He found himself law books, taught himself the law, passed the bar, and became a practicing lawyer. We've got to educate ourselves and not just let the world dictate the terms. Right now in our schools, our school systems are doing everything they can. I'm reminded of a story of a boy in, in Florida. He's in a classroom, and the teacher, um, I guess, runs out of things to talk about, and they've got about 15 minutes left in class, and so she tells the classroom, she says, um, you can pull out any book you want to and read for the next 15 minutes until class is out. And so everybody's pulling out their books, and a boy in the back of the classroom pulls out a Bible. And this teacher lost her mind, started screaming at this little boy, any book but that book. And that's what we are, we are allowing our students to go to and be indoctrinated in that kind of a camp. Critical race theory is becoming more and more prevalent. And if you don't know what that is, I, I urge you to look it up and to educate yourself on it. Right now, children are being taught to hate each other at a young age. They, the children don't know anything about racism. They're taught that kind of thing. That's not in the heart of a little child. But right now in our school, starting at very young ages, they're teaching them to hate each other based on skin color and not content of the character. We've got to be careful. We've got to really consider whether or not we release our children to this kind of stuff. And for decades now, our children have been taught evolutionary theory and whether or not they believe the main proponents of evolutionary theory, they catch on to a lot of what evolution teaches. Evolution teaches that we are just a result of time and chance, that we're all just a cosmic accident. And then we wonder, and then the nation is just shocked. As, as, a, as a nation, we're, we're culturally shocked whenever a mass shooter comes out of nowhere and ends up shooting up a place. And we're wondering what's, what's motivating them. Were they, were they crazy? Like, what, 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 what was it? Could it be that for decades we have taught people that people are nothing but a cosmic accident, that they're no different than the deer we shoot during hunting season? And then we wonder how this stuff happens. People, we've got to get back to God. And the only way that's going to happen is if the, the, the church realizes it's, its job and its obligation. And that's what I want to talk, out right, talk about right here as I'm coming to a close. Common sense would tell us this. It would teach us this. I appreciate President Trump's motto, um, and it really, it really struck something, struck a chord in, in the American people whenever he came out with it in 2016, and Reagan did it before him. And that is, let's make America great again. But I would argue that the only way that America can become great again is if America returns to what made it great in the first place. And what made it great in the first place was God everywhere in the United States, in every institution, God in our homes, God in our schools, God in our governments. We need God to reign again. Amen. So what are we to do? What can we do? Is there anything that we can do? Because my goal every year at this time, right before the 4th of July, is not to uh, give you depression. My goal is not for you to go home and, and think to yourself that we're doomed and we have no hope. But my goal every year on this Wednesday, last Wednesday before the 4th of July, is to remind us where we came from and hopefully the church, and, and, and we're only one spot. We're in Purcell, Oklahoma. We've got one area, but this is one place that we can do our job. And we can pray that the church and other places are going to do their job. And that's how revival takes hold of America. So what can we do? There are a few things. The first, maybe the most obvious, but it needs to be said. We must pray. 
If there's any hope for revival in America, it starts with prayer. If America is going to become great again, if America is going to become Christian again, her churches must begin to pray again. We have replaced prayer with so much stuff. We've replaced prayer with agendas. We've replaced prayer with self-help books. We've replaced prayer with all kinds of stuff. We've got to get back to praying. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just another thing that we do. It's not just um, one of those, it's not just a Christian, you hear people talk about prayer like it's just a Christian discipline. It's just something you do. You discipline yourself to prayer. No, prayer matters. We're doing it for a reason. We're touching a God that answers prayer. So we've got to get back to prayer. Revival in America begins with revival in her churches. Amen. The next thing that we've got to do if we're going to see a turn in America is we have to be salt and light. Jesus called his church to be salt and light in society. And you know what? That's emphatic in Greek. That is, you are the only salt and you are the only light. That means it can come from no other area. If the, if the world is going to be preserved, if there's anything in it, if there's going to be a light in the world, it has to come from the church. And that's the words of Jesus. He says that we've got to be salt and light. This applies to every Christian. We need preachers, absolutely. We've got to have preachers. But you know what else we need? Not everybody is a Jeremiah. Not everybody is an Elijah. Not everybody is called to preach from their mother's womb. We have to have people that are just good, faithful believers, just good apostolics, apostolic teachers and apostolic lawyers and apostolic doctors and apostolic businesswomen and, and businessmen and apostolic, and here we go, apostolic politicians and apostolic soldiers and police officers. We need apostolics in every area of society. Do not check your faith at the door. Carry your faith with you to the schools and to your place of employment. Everybody where you work ought to know that you're something different. And you're not just a Christian. You're the most different kind of Christian I've ever met in my life. What's so different about you? And that ought to open the door. That's how we become salt and light in society. We bring our faith with us. Too many times we feel like that if we're anything but a preacher, then we're something less than. No, that's not true. Everybody's going to get to hear a chance to hear the same words. Either well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. That's the same for the preacher, and that's the same for the doctor. That's the same for the preacher, and that's the same for the lawyer, and the police officer, and the teacher. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We've got to be salt and light in society. Amen. We need it to invade every area of society. We have to participate in society. What do I mean by that? I mean when it's time to... We, we have one of the greatest things in America is our opportunity to shape the government of America. There are countries that are not able to do so. If you were able to ask the Christians that are in China and the Christians that are in the Middle East, if they would like the option to pick who is uh, ruling over them, who is leading them, absolutely they would love to be able to do that. Because in the Middle East, the places in the Middle East and in China, Christianity is a capital punishment. They have to be underground. And yet you and I have an opportunity to go to the ballot box and choose people who are honorable to God, who can lead us in the right direction as best as humanly possible. And yet too many times when Christians go to the ballot box, we leave our faith at the door. And we say we're not going to allow our faith to influence our vote. It can't happen anymore, not if America is going to change. The next thing we have to do is we have to persevere. We have to stand and we have to keep going. I said it the other day, it's okay to get tired in the fight. It's okay while we're wrestling every day for truth and for righteousness and for our homes and for our families. It's okay to get tired, rest, recover, and then keep fighting. 
The only thing it's not okay to do is to get tired of the fight. Don't get tired of fighting for truth and for righteousness. But we've got to keep going. Amen. And then lastly, I want to say this, and this is what I'm going to leave us with, and then I want us to take some time and to pray for America at the end. We have to remember. Every year, I want to remind us. And we're getting ready for this 4th of July, and I hope on the 4th of July you remember. You remember that America is not an accident. You remember that this country that we're living in, you know what, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he had an opportunity to meet um, some people that have immigrated from Sudan. And he's talking to them. And he said, one of them told him, because he's asking them, you know, what do you like about America and that kind of thing. And he said, you know, one of the most amazing things about America is the fact that y'all aren't always fighting. And he didn't mean just like arguments over Twitter. He meant war. He meant, how is it possible that city isn't fighting against city and state against state in America? How is it possible that you, we've got peace across our land? He couldn't fathom it because he comes from a country that people are fighting over everything. Tribes against tribes, families against families, wars happening constantly. We ought to never take it for granted, this country that we're living in. It's special And it's special because of God's hand on it. So this 4th of July, I want us to remember, I want us to think about God's hand on America from the very beginning. And I want you at some point, if you want to stand, I want you at some point on the 4th of July to find some time by yourself or with your family. And I want you just to pray, to pray for America, pray for this country that we have. Here's the truth. God could come back at any moment. Jesus could come back and he could take his church out of here at any moment. And I'm excited for the day and we're waiting and we're longing for that day. But if Jesus doesn't come back for 50 years, are we leaving our children and their children a nation that they can grow up in with freedom and the ability to worship God as the Bible says? Are we leaving them that kind of nation? Or are we taking our hands off the process and we're just saying whatever happens, happens? I hope we plug in. I hope we really think about what we're leaving our children. So I wonder if you could find a place to pray tonight. I'm coming to a close. Find a place to pray. And I want you just to pray for America tonight. Pray for this country. Pray for the direction of this country. That God would help us. Pray that there would be a revival in the land from east coast to west coast. In the name of Jesus.